You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, good morning. Morning. So I asked Jimmy to sing that song, but that just always gets me. (laughs) Thank you, Jimmy. It can be really intimidating for a layperson to give a message on a reading because you think, am I going to get this right? Do I even know what I'm doing up here? And when the layperson is a woman, you think about things like, does that camera really add 10 pounds? (laughs) Does my makeup look okay under these lights? Does it? Thank you. Do I have a tag sticking out somewhere? But those are just distractions. The important thing to keep in mind is that it's a big responsibility. It's a huge responsibility and can be very humbling to give a message on God's word. You want to make sure you get it right. So let's dive into our reading and please stand if you're able. From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat, to the other side of the lake. A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. And lived. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly, He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kaum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So there's a lot going on in that reading. We have two daughters. One is a daughter of Israel, and Jesus refers to her as daughter. The other is the daughter of an official. And 12 seems to be an important number in this reading. One daughter has suffered a womanly affliction for 12 years, and the other is just about to become a woman. She's 12 years old. And we have some juxtaposition. The older woman is an outcast, ritually unclean for 12 years, and now she's living as a pauper and living on the fringe of society. And the younger woman, the girl, has a certain status from her father's official role as benefactor, or you could call him a patron, of the local synagogue, and she's definitely a part of her society. But in both of these instances, we're told that these women are healed by faith. One is healed because of her own faith, the other because of someone else's faith, but still, they're both healed by faith. And in both of those instances, Jesus is willing to make himself unclean by touching both of these ritually unclean, in other words, dead or hemorrhaging people. But does he really become unclean himself, or does his holiness cleanse them? And of course, we know the answer to that over 2,000 years later. But what did those people think? That was a really risky move to make yourself unclean, especially when you're already accused of being crazy and blasphemous, and you hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes. But this reading is also about desperation and distractions. And it's about seeing that God is moved to action by our faith, even when he's in the middle of doing something else. It's a story within a story, kind of like a sandwich story, as some commentators have called it. So the first part of the story, story A, in verses 21 through 24, that's the top of the bun. And the second part of the story A, in verses 35 through 43, that's the bottom of the bun. And the meat of the reading is story B, that's right in the middle of the sandwich, the distraction that comes in verses 25 through 34. But first, let's take a look at story A, and we'll come back to story B later and look at the big distraction. So we start off by kind of asking ourselves, what's going on here? And if we go back in the text a little bit in Mark, we see that Jesus had had come across the lake here, but previously he had gone over to the other side. And he calmed a storm to get to the other side of that lake. And when he got there, he healed a man from demon possession. Now, this man had been living in the tombs. He'd been yelling, screaming, cutting himself. Nothing seemed to help him. But when Jesus got there, those demons within that man knew who Jesus was, and they spoke to him, and he spoke back, calling them out of the man. And then Jesus sent the demons right into the bodies of a herd of swine, and they ran into the lake, and they drowned. And the people in that town begged Jesus to leave. Now, everyone begged him except the formerly demon-possessed man. He wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus told him to go home and tell everyone what the Lord had done for him. So the man went away, Jesus comes back across the lake, and that's where our story starts. Jesus gets off the boat, and right away, as so often happens wherever Jesus is, there's a crowd, there's people hustling and bustling, And in that crowd was Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue. He was kind of a big deal. 
He was a man of power and position, a high-ranking religious leader, maybe even a Pharisee, that same group of people who ridiculed Jesus through his entire ministry. He was a man of social and religious prominence who risked ridicule and rejection just in coming to see Jesus. And yet, here he was. And he was faced with a desperate situation, maybe even hopeless. But as we know, Jesus doesn't do hopeless. And in his desperation to get his daughter some help, he's here when Jesus gets off the boat. And we're never told why, other than that desperation that Jairus might be here. I mean, what did he see in Jesus? Did he think Jesus was the Messiah? Did he think he was a prophet, a healer, a teacher? We're never told. But we do know that he believed that if Jesus would just touch his little girl, that she would live. He'd tried everything else, and his little girl is really, really sick. So Jairus falls at Jesus' feet. His little girl is dying. The same little girl who calls this man Daddy. Clearly all conventional medicine had failed, and treatment had failed. I mean, heck, the family had already hired professional mourners in anticipation of her dying. And it sounds like most of them had given up. But here is Jairus to try and get Jesus, and he believes that Jesus can heal that sick little girl. He says that if Jesus lays his hands on her, she will live. It's kind of astounding. She will live. You know, we see that same kind of faith in the other part of this story sandwich. We also see it in the story of Abraham in Genesis 22, where he's told to sacrifice his only son, and he, he obeys the Lord. But before he strikes the knife into Isaac's chest, the Lord provides a sacrificial lamb. And we see it also in Exodus 14 in the story of Moses, where he has the sea in front of him, and behind him, the Egyptian army. And he tells the people of Israel, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which, which he will accomplish for you today. Now, I'm sure Moses had no idea how the Lord was going to make this miracle happen, and it certainly looked desperate for Moses and the people of Israel. But God rewarded the faith and obedience of Moses. And he also showed it to us with David and Goliath when that little boy walked out against all odds and struck down a giant. Jesus sees Jairus' faith and his desperation. And they start off for the home of Jairus as the crowd continues to follow and press around. And you can imagine it's loud and it's hot. Now, we don't know how far Jairus has come to greet Jesus as he gets off the boat. And we don't know how far it is back to Jairus' home. But we can all imagine that when someone is sick and at the point of death, most of us would feel that time is of the essence. There would be some sense of urgency. And just think that if that was you, you're trying to get medical attention for your sick kid or parent or sibling or whoever, and the crowd just keeps getting in the way. You're on a mission to help, but there are all these distractions and interruptions. And one of those interruptions, story B, has a pretty significant outcome. Significant for one person, anyway. And right after that interruption has been dealt with, some people come to tell Jairus that his daughter is dead. So 
stop bothering the teacher, it's too late. Now put yourself in his position. You've done your best. You've tried to get help, and now you're told it's too late. Imagine the desperation, the regret, the sadness, maybe even anger at all the people who just kept you from accomplishing your mission. But then Jesus comes up and tells you, don't be afraid. Just keep believing. Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, as they get to the home, we read that all those hired mourners are crying and wailing. Now, this isn't organ music in a little chapel kind of mourning and wailing. This is professional, I've been hired by a professional ruler kind of wailing going on here. It's loud, it's emotional, it's disconcerting, it's signaling deep grief and pain, and it's completely insincere. And you've still got the large crowd jostling and pushing. And probably the mother was there too, and any other family members were there. They're just wondering what's going on. And Jesus questions them, why are you wailing? The child is not dead. So, of course, the mourners laugh at him. And in Matthew's version, it says they ridicule him. I mean, what else would you do at a time like that? You know she's dead. She's been dead for a while now. And that's sometimes our response to a situation so patently absurd, so unbelievable, so extraordinary. All we can do is laugh or make fun of the situation. Like Abraham and Sarah when they were told they were going to be parents in their 90s or 100s. You know, our story continues with Jesus kicking everybody out of the room except mom, dad, the little girl, Peter, James, and John. And I can imagine the parents looking at their dead daughter trying to figure out what is about to happen. Even when Jesus himself tells you, don't worry, just keep believing, how easy is that really? Do you wonder what Jairus and the mother thought about a teacher who was about to defile himself by touching a dead girl? We don't know for sure. We don't know if Jairus witnessed that first miracle or not where the bleeding woman was healed. And maybe that gave him more faith. But while they're looking on, grieving, Jesus takes the little girl by the hand, tells her to get up. Talitha kum, get up. How many times had her mother said those exact words to her in the morning when she wanted her out of bed? And Jesus used those words to summon her from death to life, and everybody is astonished. Then, Jesus tells them to give the little girl something to eat. You can almost see the smile, the compassion, and the love which Jesus would say these last words, reminding our parents that sickness and death might have made this little girl kind of hungry. What a miracle. From complete desperation to complete joy at the fulfilled word of Jesus. Don't be afraid. Believe. So now we come back to story B, the distraction, the meat in the story sandwich. As Jesus is making his way to the home of Jairus, the crowd continues to press in on him. It's probably hot and dusty and loud, and everybody's asking for something, talking with each other, trying to get closer to Jesus. Lots of jostling around, maybe some shoving and pushing, 
just a lot of commotion and excitement and distractions. And for anyone who has ever served downstairs in Clubhouse, you know the sounds. All the kids talking at the same time, asking you for something. Can I get a drink? Can I go to the bathroom? I wanted the blue balloon. She pushed me. That's probably how God feels. All of his children asking him for something all at the same time. Please get me the raise I oh, so desperately need. My body need. hurts so badly. My child is sick. Please make him well. I need a job. Can't you make it rain? I can't afford the medicine. Can you please do something about those fires? Not another Help shooting. Help the people suffering from famine. Where, Where are, are you, God? God? Anyway, in our story, in that noisy, dusty, jostling crowd, there's this distraction. A woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. She's an outcast, a pauper. She probably shouldn't even have been in that crowd because she's unclean. She has no money because she's spent all of her resources on all kinds of treatments that haven't worked. Let's put ourselves in her shoes now. You know, she is desperate enough for healing from this affliction that she risks the ire and condemnation of her fellow citizens by actually coming near to them, near enough to touch or be touched. Or maybe she had to travel to a faraway town where no, nobody knew her or knew of her affliction. The nature of her affliction, bleeding, was covered by the rules in Leviticus 15, 25 through 27. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has bleeding that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has bleeding, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her bleeding continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will be unclean till evening. So the law declared her to be ceremonial unclean due to her bleeding issue. She would have been an outcast for 12 years. She couldn't take part in any religious observances. She wouldn't have been permitted to enter the temple for any ceremonies. She couldn't have any contact with anyone without defiling anyone she touched. And she was probably also forced to be separated from her husband. Because again, according to the law, anything or anyone she touched became unclean. We can imagine that in being in that crowd, pressing around Jesus... That means that she was probably bumping into or touching others, and they would have become unclean also, including Jesus. So do you wonder if she felt kind of badly at the thought of making other people unclean? I, I think about that. I wonder that. Leviticus 15.28 goes on to say, When she is cleansed from her bleeding, she must count off seven days, and after that she will be ceremonial ceremonially clean. So she'd have to wait another seven days after being made well. So after 12 years of suffering, 12 years of being an outcast, this woman was desperate for a miracle. Here's some treatments that are listed in the Talmud. Take gum of Alexandria, of alum, and of Crocus Hortensis, the weight of Azuzi each. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that hath an issue of blood. But if this fails, take of Persian onions, nine logs, boil them in wine, and give it to her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. But should this fail, 
set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand and let somebody come behind and affright her and say, Arise from thy flux. But should this do no good, take a handful of cumin and a handful of crocus and a handful of fenugreek. Let these be boiled and given to her to drink and say, Arise from thy flux. But should this also fail, dig seven trenches and burn in them some cuttings of vines not four years old and let her take in her hand a cup of wine and let her be led from this trench and set down over that and let her be removed from that and set down over another and in each removal say unto her, Arise from thy flux. This poor woman had probably tried all of these. Imagine being unclean for 12 years, being an outcast for that long. And that might not have been the worst part. Imagine the discomfort, the constant bathing and washing, the the loneliness, the isolation, the oppression, the feeling that you must have done something bad to deserve this. And then you decide to take a risk. Now remember, it was not okay for anyone to touch her. But she dared to touch Jesus. Not even Jesus, really, just the hem of his cloak. Verses 27 and 28. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. So maybe she hesitates for just a bit, and then she gathers her courage, and she pushes her way in closer, and then she does it. She touches the hem of his cloak. And the moment she touches his clothes, her bleeding stops and she's healed. And she knows she's been healed in that moment, in that instant. And just as she knows she's been healed, Jesus knows too that he's healed someone. And he knows exactly who. Even through all the bumping and shoving and jostling, he knows. But he turns and looks and asks, who touched me? As if he didn't know. And the disciples, they're just astonished. And they tell him all these people crowding around you and shoving and closing in on you. You ask who touched you? Because they don't seem to realize that he just knows. So he keeps looking and asking, who touched me? And again, he already knows. So why does he keep asking? Is it maybe to force the woman to come forward so she can bear witness to her illness and her healing? Is it so that Jesus can demonstrate the power of his healing by her faith? Because he could have just healed her and let it go at that. But he didn't. He stopped. He acknowledged the distraction. He acknowledged that she had been healed by her faith. Verse 33, Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. So why was she trembling with fear and scared to come forward? I wonder if she felt like, like she had stolen some healing from him. Or did she feel it was wrong to touch him and to defile him? Except that where her touch should have defiled him, his touch removed her defilement, just as it did with the dead girl in story A. And both of the stories in our reading illustrate the power of Jesus and of working through and believing through distractions. So how did Jesus deal with this distraction? Did he treat it as a a distraction or as another opportunity to glorify God? I think in this story, the distraction was just another opportunity to glorify God. Now, the woman in our story, she didn't get distracted, not by the crowd or the noise or the dust or even by her own illness. She was so desperate for a miracle 
She wanted to be made well, and she just kept pushing until she got it. She couldn't be sure she'd be made well. She believed Jesus could heal her, but she didn't know if he would heal her. And the same with Jairus. He believed that Jesus could heal his child, but he didn't know that he would heal her. And then not to mention, even going beyond that and raising the child from death. But both of these people just kept leaning in, believing through distractions and desperation. So how do we deal with our own distractions that keep us from following Jesus? As believers, we should look at God as the, as the captain of our ship. If we try to steer ourselves, we might go the wrong way, get lost. We'd start to fear and worry. And we might think, oh, I'm in this by myself. The Bible says this about distractions. In Proverbs 3, 6, Think about him in all your ways, and he will guide you on the right paths. God has promised to guide us, but instead of focusing on him, we start focusing on, on the huge waves and the storm. Distraction from God and what he wants happens when we get caught up in life and in the world, and also Satan will throw distractions at us. Many of you know the Romero family, and a few years ago, we were planning a service of prayer and healing for Shay here at our church. And Chris and I decided to fast and pray in preparation for that first prayer service. And the morning of that very first prayer service, my mom's assisted living home called to tell me that she had died that morning. Talk about a distraction. But we kept pushing through, right? I think we felt really blessed by that. But the thing is that Satan will do anything he can to get you off your game. But keep the focus on Jesus. Peter got distracted by everything around him. <laughs> Matthew 14, 28 through 31. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then, G then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? There's lots of storms going around all of us right now that can distract us. Nearly every day we hear about another mass shooting. We hear about wars, the economy, the weather, and then during this season, the political ads. And in desperation, we start to sink, just like Peter did, because we can be so distracted by everyday events that we miss the miracles around us. Even the things that we think are doing the Lord's work, those can be distractions if we let it. Luke 10, 38 through 42, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. See, the problem wasn't with Martha's serving, but that she was distracted. Her worry and distraction prevented her from being truly present with Jesus. And if we're not present with him, then we can't really follow him. Mary, who was not distracted, 
discovered that being present and spending time with Jesus was the thing worth being concerned about. And if our mission, our purpose, is to follow Jesus, then we need time to be still in his presence and hear his word. We need to be free from our own distractions and desperations so we can focus on Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, Do not allow any temporary excitement to distract you from the real business. Our real business is following Jesus. And every time we pay attention to some devastatingly bad news item, a hurricane, a shooting, a tanking economy, we get distracted from following him. We get desperate and we sink into the muck and the mire around us. But as followers, we should be rising above that. Because while we have to live in this world as believers, we focus on the next. If we rise above our earthly circumstances, we set an example to others, and we can give them hope. There are times when miracles happen all around us, right in the middle of other things, and we just don't notice. I picked up some acorns on a trip to Amarillo a few years ago, came home and stuck them in the dirt, and now we have oak trees growing in our front yard. That's kind of miraculous. And we plant seeds in our garden each spring, and then food happens. That's still miraculous to me. And when reconciliation happens between people or between nations, when we thought it was impossible, that's really miraculous. I think we should be more like Jairus and the woman with the bleeding issue and keep believing through desperation and push through our distractions. We can overcome those distractions by just taking quiet time to read and pray and just be in the presence of Jesus. Let's don't focus on our distractions, but keep following Jesus to see where he wants us to serve. My name is Jairus, and there were two miracles the day the Lord saved my little girl, but I only saw one. I heard about the other one later, and it was truly a miracle. But you see, I, I was so hopeful when the Lord said that he would come to my house. But, but then he stopped, and he, he kept talking to someone, and And I couldn't hear what he was saying, but he stopped. He wasn't coming with me. And I I kept trying to get the whole crowd to come on. I'm like, come on, let's go. Let's go. We have to go. And just when they finally started to move, my servant said that my little girl had died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And then Jesus looked right into my eyes and said, don't be afraid, just believe. That day I was so desperate to have Jesus save my daughter that I was distracted from a miracle that happened right in front of my eyes. And honestly, aren't we all like that sometimes? We're distracted by the news, the wars, the prices of fill in the blank, the politicians and their endless babbling, our jobs, our marriages, our kids, and this. Now this, in and of itself, is a miracle but we still get distracted. And sometimes in our desperation, we're distracted. And what did our two stories have in common? Well, both the woman and Jairus had tried everything themselves before they turned to Jesus. Jesus was a last option, if you will, kind of a Hail Mary. Here at first, we follow Jesus. At least that's what we try to do. But are we close enough to touch the hem of his garment. And if not, why not? 
we need to put the distractions that we face every day in God's lap. We need to let Jesus be our multitasker. Put away the distractions, focus on a relationship with God in prayer and in his word, and without this. And I mean, turn it off. Now this, you can say, I have my Bible on here, my concordance is on here. That's fantastic. And this really is a miracle. But the problem with doing your relationship with God on the phone is you also have text messages that can come through, an important email, a phone call. That's why this has to go away so that you can be truly in God's presence. It's not that it can't be a tool, but it can't be when you are trying to be alone with your Lord. And if you say, well, I can't, you see, because whatever the reason is, what you're basically saying is, I'm more important than my relationship with God. And if you say, well, Chris, you don't understand, it's a work phone, I have to have it on. What you're saying then is, my job's more important than my relationship with God. In this world of endless distractions, let's really try and take time to nurture our relationship with God, to really follow Jesus. Peter, when he focused on Jesus, walked on the water. And that's kind of miraculous when he wasn't distracted. But then when he was, and because we all are at one time or another, he and we begin to sink. But he cried out to the Lord, save me, and he did. And he will to us too when we cry out, when we get distracted. But at this moment, in this instant, if we focus and follow our Lord closely enough to touch the hem of his garment, what might happen here at first? When John 14, Jesus gives us an idea when he talks about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the same things that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I mean, that's quite a promise that the Lord's making to us. But it's our calling when we follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Every day, let's as a family at first focus on our Lord and Savior, practice by prayer and study, and then watch the miracles happening right now and give glory to God. Let's not make turning to Jesus a last option, but our first option. In fact, our only option. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, and we thank you for scripture that allows us to learn to focus on you, to not be distracted, even in desperation, that we can and we will see miracles abound around us if we can only focus on our relationship with you. And we are able to do this because of your Lord and Savior and Son who died for us. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.